Trust me, I'm like a smart person. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast where we ask academics to shed light on the issues they know inside and out. The new year is a time of optimism and fresh starts and really unrealistic resolutions. But let's be real, most of us are creatures of habits. We don't like big upheavals. And when we're afraid to change, what we're really frightened of is the risk of dying, of being alone, or even just not getting what we thought we would when we try something new. Coming up, we're talking about the risky trade-offs we make, the risk of loneliness, and the risks and rewards of stepping a little out of your comfort zone. Let's start right off with the really big risk, dying. We spend our whole lives making choices we hope will keep us alive. But can you ever really know the impact of your decision to smoke a cigarette, watch an hour of TV or drink a glass of wine? To find out, Sananda Cray talked to Hassan Valley, an expert on health risks from La Trobe University. A microlife is a unit of measure that tries to capture how much your lifespan is either increased or decreased as a result of a particular activity. That's Hassan Valley. I'm a senior lecturer in epidemiology at La Trobe University. That sounds better. Just, what's epidemiology? That, that's, a, that's actually one of the hardest questions to answer. So epidemiology is really about studying disease at a population level. So what we're trying to do is understand all aspects of disease so that we can inform what people do in public health. He told me all about this concept of a microlife, this idea that was invented by Professor David Spiegelhalter. He's the professor for the public understanding of risk at Cambridge University. A microlife is equivalent to a 30-minute unit of life. By smoking a packet of cigarettes a day, you're taking five hours off your lifespan each particular day that you perform that activity. Just watching television on your couch every 60 minutes that you do that takes off a half a microlife. So that costs you 15 minutes of your lifespan. My God, I knew I shouldn't have watched so much Game of Thrones. Hassan had this piece of paper in front of him. We'll post it on our website at theconversation.com so you can see it for yourself. And it listed all these foods and drinks and activities that either earn or lose you microlifes. And some of the things on that list really surprised me. Did I see being male on there? As yeah, this is the other thing. There are things that are inherent that you can't change. By being a male, it actually effectively costs you two hours of your lifespan per day compared to a female. Per day? Yeah. But similarly, just being born in modern times, that actually adds 15 microlives per day being born in this modern world rather than being born at the beginning of the 20th century. Every day that you're five kilograms overweight, that costs you a microlife. So that takes 30 minutes off your life each and every day that you're overweight by five kilograms. If you look at the positive side, of course, if you actually eat your vegetables each day, 
you know, the appropriate serving of vegetables that are recommended each day, that adds four micro lives to your lifespan, which is effectively a couple of hours each day. So if you want to motivate yourself to eat, your, eat healthily, you can actually visualise yourself increasing your lifespan every time you have those servings of vegetables. What if you're having a side of bacon with the vegetables? The latest data suggests that every time you have two servings of bacon, that costs you two micro lives. So that takes an hour off your lifespan. Can I have another look at this sheet? Yeah, yeah. Talk about coffee. Once again, the latest data on coffee has shown that coffee has health promoting properties. And so every cup of coffee that you have adds about a third of a micro life. So if you like three cups of coffee, adds a micro life to your lifespan, which is adding 30 minutes. So we've talked a little bit about smoking and what you consume. What about what you do? The key thing is about exercise, I guess. Every kilometre that you walk adds 0.4 of a micro life to your lifespan, so that buys you 12 minutes, if you like. People who cycle 20 kilometres will add about an hour to their lifespan. More exercise, more micro lives. Yep. Okay, let me see if there's any other on here that jump out at me. Oh my goodness, medical procedures. Yeah, Tell I'm, me about I'm that. Like... The issue with that is there's obviously a cost that you want to understand, but you've got to quantify the benefits as well. So if a, having a mammogram costs you what is, whatever it says, it says it costs you four hours of your lifespan. If that diagnoses a cancer, that's going to save you, you know, maybe 20 years of your life. So it's this, you've got to be really careful about uh, understanding the costs and benefits. And that's part of why this is really important because it allows people to, to do that arithmetic and work out the costs of activities and then trade them off against the benefits. Let me just look at the list again and see if there's yeah. anything else I want to draw attention to. Just as anything. Oh, I think alcohol is probably worth drawing attention to because yeah, people do a, drink. It is. <laughs> look, alcohol highlights the complexity of measuring the risk of a certain exposure. So the general belief right now is that a little bit of alcohol is good but a lot of alcohol is not so good. So the first drink of alcohol that you have is actually beneficial. So that first drink adds a micro life onto your lifespan. So it adds 30 minutes per day for each day that you drink alcohol. But once you go beyond that, it starts to cost you. And then you can also add on that extreme behavior of binge drinking. And that not only poses a chronic risk, but also poses an acute risk because people who binge drink are more likely to die by doing something really silly. So it gets very, very messy, but very interesting as well. Very risky. Yeah. Okay. Just talking more generally about risk, people find it hard to think about risks that are in their future. I mean, I know I do. Do you do that? No, I don't think any of us can. I think, I think it's a psychological phenomenon that all people to either a lesser or greater extent find it really difficult to fully understand the risk of something in the future. Some people are quite good at it, but a lot of people are very bad at it. And that, that explains why people do really bad things behaviourally. That's why people smoke, why people eat a bad diet. This derives from a concept from behavioural economics called temporal discounting. And it, that just speaks to the fact that people find it really difficult to appreciate the cost of something that's going to happen down the track. Talking about risk in general, you know, you only have to look at the headlines to see that people fear things like shark attacks, being attacked by a stranger in a dark alleyway, having a child kidnapped. People fear these things that statistically are quite unlikely to happen. 
You know, why is that? I guess it comes back to the way human beings are and we're emotional creatures rather than rational. So we respond to things emotionally rather than um, the data, if you like. And so anything like that that can be easily conjured up in the mind and, and can have an impact on your thinking, you're going to disproportionately weigh that in your mind as a greater risk than it actually is. So just ways that our mind plays tricks on us and makes us mostly overreact to things that are very unlikely to happen, but sometimes we can underreact. I remember when I first had a kid, I read an article about people who've forgotten they left the child in the car and the child has died. And this weighed on my mind so heavily. I was so worried about it. And then my sister pointed out that statistically speaking, kids are probably more likely to die in car accidents. That also speaks to another particular cognitive biases, bias to do with locus of control. So when people feel like some event is kind of like a random event and they have no control over it, like a shark attack, which is also very unlikely, that seems to weigh more heavily on the mind than something they feel like they have control over even when they don't really have control so in a car everyone thinks they're safe in a car because they feel like they're in control behind the steering wheel and they're influencing events but obviously you can't influence the way other people are driving it also it's why people fear terrorism which is statistically unlikely because that scene is so random and so out of your control as to you know if an attack or where an attack might happen but statistically it's very unlikely and so what, what do you fear at an unreasonable level, despite all your knowledge and training in this area? That's a good question. I probably fear a lot of things, but I'm of the generation that grew up with Jaws the movie, so I still I fear sharks more than I should. And I'm not even that much of a swimmer, so I shouldn't even fear them at all. But um, those, those movies have made a huge impact on me. You're going to need a bigger boat. Have you ever been lonely in the middle of a crowd? Have you ever watched someone and wished you had their friends, their self-confidence, their life? The reality is that we all get lonely and researchers say it's so common, it's actually a public health risk. Julie Carley talked to Michelle Lim, an expert on the health risks of loneliness from Swinburne University of Technology. Everyone feels lonely. It actually doesn't discriminate from any age group or any community group. And it's actually quite normal to feel that way. If you think about loneliness almost as a signal to, for you to connect, and it's a signal that we shouldn't be ignoring. So when we're hungry, we, we, we eat, and when we're thirsty, we drink. But when we're actually lonely, um, that's a signal for us to actually do something. And people tend to kind of think that that might be a bit of a vulnerability or weakness, but a, that's actually a very normal signal that your body's giving. So I think what's really important is if you feel lonely, it's really important to actually verbalize that and recognize that and think about ways that you could reduce that loneliness, what works for you. What's probably also really 
important, I guess, to understand is that if we are lonely, we tend to protect ourselves and we tend to withdraw from others, even though we feel lonely. Being a loner can also be sometimes known as being an introvert, and introverts、um, tend to be more of a personality trait. And introverts, however, still also feel lonely. So just because you're introvert doesn't mean that you necessarily want to be alone all the time. Introverts also benefit from holding meaningful relationships.、Um, one might argue that it may be fewer relationships that they need, but introverts themselves still feel lonely. An extrovert is someone who、um, really gets energy from other people, being around other people, and, and interacting. Just because you're extroverted, though, doesn't necessarily mean that you hold strong, meaningful relationships. But being extroverted might mean that you have less social avoidance of situations that introverts may, and it may also mean that you have lots and lots of social interactions, and and you feel. Uplifted by those interactions, loneliness is well known to be actually, in fact, detrimental to many physical health indicators.、Uh, and we do know that if you're lonely, you're more likely to die earlier, and amongst other things. So, the literature in that is actually quite vast. You know, a lot of researchers are saying that loneliness is now this growing public health issue that. You know, people don't actually recognize it could even be more deadly than obesity, for example. But still, we haven't quite got the recognition that loneliness is a problem and is something that we need to address, and it should be actually included in social policies. Loneliness is not just a health issue, and we know it's bad for physical health and it's bad for mental health. It's also bad for society. So there's a lot of You know, I guess factors that we need to address when we actually want to address loneliness, and a lot of things that we need to change. And we're really at the infancy of really understanding how to actually mitigate loneliness. And you know, I, I'm I'm excited about the prospects of being able to kind of address this in a kind of multifaceted way. So, can you please explain the concept of loneliness as contagious? I'm going to try my best to explain this. With loneliness being a contagion, is that particular evidence has actually come from the U.S., where there was、uh, one study that actually looked at loneliness across what we call social network, and in some, what they found was that if you are lonely. You're more likely to be on the edge of a social network, and you're also more likely to、uh, transmit that loneliness up to three degrees of your friendship network. So, if I'm lonely and we're friends, I might pass that loneliness onto you, and you might pass that onto someone else. And when I say pass, we generally mean through behaviors,、um, lonely people who. Who want to connect with other people don't necessarily feel like they can, and often they actually show fewer pro-social behaviors, reducing their risk of rejection. And so I might be seemingly less cooperative with you, and you feel the adverse effects of that, and you might then pass that on to someone else. So that's how the transmission process happens. 
And does that affect at the community level, or is that just really small social groups? Can you explain about the, the larger kind of implications of that? What we do know is that, um, you know, in terms of intervening on actually addressing this issue, is that we can actually help uh, lonely people at the periphery of the social network, and, and actually that has positive impact uh, with people around them. So when we think about addressing loneliness, we don't simply think about getting someone who's lonely just to join a group, because that in itself may not be as effective as actually getting them to perhaps you know change the way they think about other people, because they, they might be demonstrating these fewer pro-social behaviors without realizing that that's what they're doing. So a lot of it is about identifying, first of all, that they are lonely, but also educating them on how to relate to others in a more positive way, and that in itself can actually break the vicious cycle of loneliness. Now, you mentioned there should be, like, governmental solutions. What would that even look like? Because it's so individualistic. I think that the first step, really, is for people to actually know that this is an issue. Loneliness is very easily, um, it's a problem that's really easily ignored. And, and people is always assume that it's always just, you know, yeah, I should just go hang out with more people. You know, it's, it's really not that simple. And I think there's a lot of education that needs to start right now about what loneliness is, why is it bad. Um, and that's where we can start from that ground level and think about policies that actually encourage people to to interact and and. Even if it's just increasing, you know, your your interactions with people at your workplace, you know, little things like that would really help. And I'm going to probably have a bit of a shout out with Neighbor Day in Australia, and that's a really awesome initiative by Relationships Australia National. And they had a program in which um, they actually check in with their neighbor, and they call it, you know, Neighbor Day. And I think little initiatives like that really make a difference. And people do want an excuse to, to, to say hi and to actually form those relationships. You know, technically they, sh- they shouldn't need that excuse to, to do that, but it's something that, you know, we can think about in terms of social policies, about encouraging even young people to kind of build those meaningful relationships within schools. Not all risks are life-changing or life-threatening. Sometimes it's as simple as stepping out of your comfort zone. We all like to think we're individuals, but research says that most of our taste preferences are set by our upbringing. Right, and yeah, you put Vegemite in front of an American person and they're like, what are you eating this for? This is madness. That's Dr. Alex Russell. I'm a senior postdoctoral fellow at CQ University. I research uh, gambling-related issues and also taste and smell, including wine expertise. Inspired by the silly season, I asked Alex about our taste for alcohol. Why do so many of us pick a drink of choice and stick with it basically forever? Why don't we like branching out even with the smallest choices? And how do you step outside your comfort zone? Well beyond alcohol so just think about what taste and smell are all about in general they're they're gatekeeper senses they're about keeping 
bad things out of our body. So there are, there are things that we tend to like, like sweet things, you know, we inherently like because sweetness usually indicates sugar, which indicates energy. Um, and we tend to dislike bitter because it's often associated with poisonous things. So when we taste something that's really bitter, we tend to want to spit it out immediately. Um, and so beers and coffees and things like that, when you first taste beer and coffee, they, they have a bitter element to it. And our first reaction is, I don't want to swallow this. I don't want this in my body. Over time, we learn to like it because the bitterness in beer becomes associated with the alcohol. So, you know, there's going to be a bit of fun when you taste all those other things around the bitter as well. So if, if people are trying to expand their comfort zone and they are trying to get past that knee-jerk reflex we might have towards strange new flavours, what kind of techniques can people use to set themselves up to have a good time? There's a few, you know, potentially useful things that can be done. So so smell in particular, which is a large um, part of, of flavour perception, is um, associated, very strongly associated with the memory and emotion centres of our brain. So that's why we have these strong memories of like our grandmother that are, you know, brought up by these smells. You might smell lavender and the first thing you think of is her and you might not have seen her for 20 years, but it springs to mind straight away. So associating, you know, a new and unique smell or flavour with, um, uh, you know, a, a pleasant emotional experience, say, you know, a nice date or something like that, probably not a bad time to... Mm, actually, now I think about it, maybe that's a bad time to be exploring new tastes <laughs> in case you hate it. <laughs> Drink beer, it's good for you. I went to Gab's and said, I don't really like beer. This is just a quick aside to our non-hipster listeners. Gab's stands for the Great Australian Beer Spectacular, a craft beer festival held every year in where else but Melbourne. And said, I don't really like beer to about 20 different bartenders. And they gave me samples and they started giving me samples of all these different kinds of beer that I'd never tried before because I didn't really like beer. And then that's how I learned that I actually love really stouty, dark, malty beers that taste like milkshakes. I never would have found that unless I'd had a whole bunch all at once, small amounts all at once, I want to emphasise. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so many of us, when we start exploring alcohol, we start cheap because we're all young, you know, and don't have a lot of money um, and we'll just drink whatever we can get our hands on, basically. And usually we do it to excess. So we, you know, get drunk and spew. And then we have this really terrible um, relationship between that particular flavor um, and, you know, nausea for life, basically. You know, I think many of us have a tequila or something like that, that whenever we smell, it's like, oh, I'm not doing that. Um, but... Yeah, uh, going into these things like with an open mind, like if you're attending the festival, then you're pretty willing to try stuff anyway. And exploring all these different styles and finding one that works for you is 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 great because you get the chance there to taste things side by side. Similarly, I think that's a, a large reason that people don't explore things like wine and, and spirits in particular that much because they're expensive. Um, you know, if I'm going to splash out 20 bucks on a bottle of wine, just to find in the first sip that it's really not the kind of thing that I want to drink, then I'm sort of stuck with that wine and a lot of people aren't willing to do that. So instead, go to these festivals or go to a bar that serves interesting wines by the glass rather than by the bottle um, and you can find, you know, some really interesting wines that might be made for you. I think it, um, I mean, personally, recommendations help me a lot. Uh, I think not only because, you know, my friends have good taste, but because if someone I trust is 
recommended it to me, then I'm probably more inclined to think that it's good and be willing to give it a shot. That's a really fair point. So I used to work in a bottle shop for about 10 years um, and it was a fun job because we had a few regular customers who got to trust me and, and my recommendations. And so I'd learn the kind of things that they liked and then I'd sort of say, if you like this wine, try this other one. It's kind of similar, but it's got these interesting characteristics that you haven't tried before or there's something new about this one that you might like. And just about always they'd come back and say that was a it was a nice recommendation. But they were always um, relatively small steps away from what they liked and I'd try and lead them down a path essentially. So rather than trying to take them from, you know, something as um, light as a, a, you know, a really light Pinot and trying to move them into a really heavy Cabernet, um, you know, that's a, that's a big jump to, to try something new there. Instead, try sort of little steps along the way where, where you can. So move into heavier Pinots and then, you know, say a lighter kind of Merlot from a cooler climate and then, you know, develop up into a Cabernet if that's what you want to do. You say you're pretty adventurous, but have you come across anything that's outside of your comfort zone? Yeah, there are some pretty weird things that are done, not just with alcohol, but alcohol's got some great examples. Um, so kava, for example, is made by chewing a root and saliva plays a really important part in that. And people are really willing to drink kava and, you know, I've had it, it's fun. Um, but there's a gin that's been made the last couple of years um, from a Sydney wine tasting festival where they get the spit buckets from the wine tasting festival, which contains all this leftover wine. They don't want to waste it and they distill it and make it into a gin. Now, I love gin. Gin's probably one of my favorite spirits. And the particular guys who make this are really talented, produce some beautiful gins. But, and I know I've had you know, drinks that involve saliva, but I don't want to drink a gin that's made from, you know, spit bucket wine. It just, it's, even for me, that's just a step too far. There are people who've tasted it and said that it's, you know, it's wonderful, but I don't really want to go there. Fair enough. I mean, we've all got our limits and spit bucket gin is a pretty good limit, to be honest. I think most people would, would be there with you, refusing to step over that line. At this point, I was wondering, why bother? What does it matter if we stay stuck in our comfortable gin and tonic ruts if one of the alternatives is spit bucket gin? Here's what Alex thinks. Why not take a risk? There's all these fascinating wines out there and you can just have a glass at a bar, try a sip, see if you like it. And if you don't, you don't have to drink it again. Go back to what works. In the end, I ended up doing a PhD in wine purely because, well, I could, and it was a bit of a scam in doing a PhD in wine, but it led me down a path that I never would have gone down. And for other people, you don't have to do a PhD to enjoy it, but, you know, it might sort of open some nice new experiences for you. So there are a couple of principles to keep in mind when you're trying something new, and it doesn't even have to be alcohol. So the basic steps are to take baby steps, to be prepared to try things more than once, to try them with friends, and to work out who you trust for recommendations. Thank you, Alex. That was brilliant. And I'm definitely going to go out and try some new wines tonight. Me with my glass of wine I am feeling
Special thanks today to Hassan Valley, Michelle Lim and Alex Russell, as well as Julie Kiley and Sarah Matthews. Our theme beats are from Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this episode from Pottington Bear and others from the Free Music Archive. You can read a full list of credits on our website, theconversation.com. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is out at the start of every month, and next February we'll be talking about cities. Trees can actually generate wind. During the day, if you've got trees uphill from where you're standing, the trees will actually trap warm air as it rises underneath their leaves, and that will cool because of the leaves. And so in the evening, that cool air will drop down a hillside. Uh, In the city of Stuttgart in the 1970s, they actually legislated to maintain the trees up on the hillsides above the city because they knew that that property would be used for flushing out all the air pollutants that built up during the day in the city. Find us and subscribe at iTunes, Pocket Casts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Hey guys, one last thing before you go. It's Sunny Cray here from The Conversation, and I want to pay a quick tribute to Jesse Cox. He was a good friend of mine, and if you haven't heard of him, you probably have heard his work. He worked on Trace, that amazingly successful podcast on the ABC, as well as other projects like This Is About, Radiotonic, um, Long Story Short, and a bunch of other really innovative and interesting audio narrative storytelling projects. So if you like podcasts, um, you may not know Jesse, but you have him to thank for a lot of the great podcasts that you get between your ears these days. He passed away from a brain tumour quite recently. He's survived by his wife, Q, and their three-year-old, Alfie. And I want to play you quickly a short montage of his work um, that was broadcast recently on RN Breakfast. So, yeah. Hey, Jesse, we love you. Hope you're resting easy wherever you are. And thanks for all the great listening over so many years. Now, I'm just going to make up the perfect story with the perfect beginning, the perfect end, the perfect middle. I can just kind of make it all up as I go. Because my job is to make stories and tell stories. When you do start... Hi. <clears throat> ...with an ounce of truth. Hi. Jesse Cox here. Where you start with a story which does have a bit of truth to it and then you work with them and stretch it into fiction and really blur those lines. What? You just listen to it and, and it works? No, that's not right for that. It's almost dreamscape-like at times. Exposition. 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 Action. 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 Daniel. You're listening to Radio Tonic on RN with me, Jesse Cox. Oh, yes. Radio Tonic. I've heard of that. Jonathan Goldstein, thank you so much for joining me today on Radio Tonic. Thank you. It's, it's been really great. This is Trace. Mrs James, a mother of two boys aged 13 and 11, was attacked while speaking to... Maria James was murdered at the back of her bookshop on a winter's day in Melbourne. <sighs> Seriously, where is this guy? Hello. Hey, Jesse, it's Mike. Um, uh, just wanted... Sorry, sorry, the signal's really bad. We got five minutes. We're after the news. I've got, got long story short in five minutes. It's I, I, Mike. I, you. I guess there's something about audio and sound being able to find something that does affect you so viscerally. Everyone seems to be talking about podcasts and storytelling these days and we have been discussing how producers are starting to forge what might be deemed a new Australian style or an Australian style that can sit next to the current Australian style. You might have noticed that the name in your podcast feed has changed. We're now This Is About an even more perfect podcast companion. This is About is produced by Belinda Lopez, Jess Bennett and Jesse Cox. I'm Jordan Roscopoulos. I'll see you next time. For your commute, procrastination or weekly catch-up of great stories, documentaries, essays and dramas with a twist. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Just <laughs> Reconfiguring the studio lines. Hello, good morning. Good morning, Jesse. 
Good morning. Hello, Tim. Yeah, you can hear me. Here we are on the radio. It's an oral medium. We have been talking all about listening. So before we go, what is your perfect listening environment? It's ah. One of the great things about listening Listening. is really tuning in to your surrounds. There is something, I think, really special about the way the radio feature and the radio documentary can really bring something out of what might be hidden or, or unknown. I turn off the lights, get myself really relaxed. This wonderful selection of sound and stories. <gasps> but this idea that you could actually compose with voice, you could play it like an instrument. Get out of my shop! Now, just finally. Oh. Uh, thank you, my extension is uh, 1347, if you ever need me to... Storytelling has always been one person around a campfire, around a kitchen table, telling a story. And on the radio, I think that's the medium that best evokes it, it best recreates that. And it's just this incredible place to imagine, to dream, to listen. And I think it's an incredibly powerful tool and something I'm really proud to be working on. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure. <laughs> Can't even say it. Day new more. Day new more. Hang in there. This will all make sense soon. <laughs>